0: is the true and better Adam, who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's he's the real Passover lamb. He's he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Amen.
1: I uh talked to Logan before the service um, about this, and it was actually middle middle of this week, and some tradition, uh, you know, churches will will have a video like that, or they'll have a pre-sermon rather, a more traditional sense, um, to where somebody might give like an eight to ten minute sermon before the, the, the preacher gets up there and delivers the word, and so, you know, that video is up there, and, it, and I told Logan, it's almost like I just want to go up there and say, refer to that, and then just walk off the stage in a sense, so... Uh, no, but thank you so much for being here with us. Um, obviously, I'm not Pastor Heath Marion. Um, my name is Gary Johnson. I'm over the, over the college ministry here. Uh, you know, again, you know, we were in the sound booth earlier this morning and they were, you know, asking if they would like me to have anything else on there uh, as far as my accolades go. And I was like, what, what is an accolade? So I didn't really understand at first, but I realized that it's, you know, if you've got a degree, you put your degree up there. And so. Um, as he said that, even though I was laughing, in the back of my mind, I was starting to, to doubt. I was starting to feel a little inadequate. Um, like, I didn't, like, you know, am I really going to get up on this stage and, and proclaim God's word? Like, do I really have the accolades, right? I think that's kind of a, a sort of fear or doubt that we've all experienced um, at one point or another. And this message this morning is going to be kind of talking about that in a sense um, first of all, I want to say awesome uh, worship this morning. Um, we're, we're blessed to have Logan, the band, up here. That, man, they, since I've been here, it seems like we've had pretty much the same crew, and you know, it's it's been awesome. And so, leading worship in a in a uh, songs that sing about Jesus, about God, about who He is, and kind of like that video that says the Bible is about Jesus. You know, it's not about us. In the same way our worship should be, it should be about Jesus. It should be about God and not us. So it's great that we, are, we have the privilege to be led by Logan in worship. So um, without further ado, I want to ask a couple questions before we, we really dive into the text. But I want to ask you one As a believer, maybe a more established believer, a more veteran Christian, if you will. Uh, For those of us in here that may have been in the you know faith for a little bit longer, I want to ask: how do you grow in your faith? How do you pursue discipleship? What is it that you go to in order to know God more? And in the same token, I want to ask anybody that's a believer if you were to lead someone to Christ, if you were to tell somebody of Jesus and deliver the gospel, and then they, you know, they, they have the experience of salvation, they are now regenerate, they're a believer in the body of Christ, what do you tell them to do next? What do you tell that newborn believer? What do you say, if I'm a new, if I'm a new you know, believer in Christ and I just accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, I've, I've seen my sin and realize that I need a Savior to, to to provide that justification, what do you tell me? Gary, you need to this, this, and this, you know? And so you can kind of, in your head, you might start making a list um, of what it might be that we would do. And so that's kind of going to be where we're at in our text this morning, uh, is, and you can go ahead and start turning there, is Revelation chapter 2. Um, I, I feel like if I say Revelation, um, kind of like this morning when I gave them the, the scripture to put up on the, the uh, what is that thing called, the, the, the thing, um, the it the thingamajig. Anyway, um, you know, Jason, said, I think it was Jason said something like, oh revelation. And I was like, yeah, the walking dead, apocalypse, you know, like all this crazy stuff. But no, we are not going to talk about uh, any of the, uh, some of that stuff that, you know, you probably have a lot of questions about that I don't have any answers or, you know, would even try to guess Um, but uh, what we will talk is about chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Chapter 2, verse 1 in Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place unless you repent. If you would pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning and we just ask that we would hear your your word and your word only. Lord, I ask that I would be able to step out of the way and, and let God's word speak. Lord, I pray for the people in this room for myself, for, for anybody, as we hear this message, that our hearts would be softened and willing to accept in order to apply and carry this out, Lord. Father, I just thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for all that you've given us and blessed us with. Lord, I just ask that you'd be with us for the rest of this day, and it's in your son's name we pray. You may be seated. Awesome. So, So I ask those questions, and I want you to keep those in the back of your mind as we kind of walk through the, the, the message today and we, we dive into the text, um, because I think we're going we're to come to the answer um, as we conclude. Um, and so reverting back to our passage in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, um, to kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with here, um, it's John is the author, right? And so Jesus has just come in and totally freaked him out, okay, he's like out of nowhere, and John is just scared for his life in a sense, and so, you know, he tells him, to, you know, hang hey, it's all right, it's me, it's, it's Jesus, but I, what I want you to do is I want you to write letters to these seven churches, and so he uses some different language, and we'll talk about that language, and we'll kind of understand that um, so that we have a better grasp of what he's trying to say, but ultimately these seven churches, they're dealing with something and, and Christ is, is basically calling them out at this point. They're still churches. They're still bodies of, of believers, right? But there's something that they're dealing with. And so, before we walk through those five verses, first I want to talk about the, the church that he's writing to, this particular church that we're going to be talking about, the church of Ephesus. Now, if you, if you know anything about Ephesus, or the Ephesians, you know there's a book that Paul wrote, an epistle letter to the Ephesians we see them excuse me in in the book of Acts a couple of times being mentioned uh, and then again we see them being brought up in the both the books of Timothy first and second Timothy I think Pastor Heath already made the joke about Donald Trump and saying to Timothy or something like that or whatever that is but first and second Timothy um, and so I want to talk about what the Ephesians Church what the the church in Ephesus, Looked like what? Like were they a healthy church? Were they doing the will of God? And so, um, you don't have to turn with me. I'll kind of be running through to give a little bit of a background. But um, let's first start with just the epistle itself, the, the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul writes. You know, he starts in there and he calls the Ephesian saints faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he calls them and says basically they're 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 doing their job as believers. They are loving Christ. They they are, they are staying strong in the faith. Um, he's heard of their love, not only for Jesus, but they're also their love for the saints. So they've got this brotherly love about them too. So they're all getting along, they're meshing well, it's, it's a good team, right? So there's nothing in this passage, or in, this, in that book rather, that, that talks about any sort of issues, which is unlike some of the other epistles, right, that we, hear, that we see that Paul writes, where he's, he's calling specific sin out, or he's, he's trying to direct them into a certain way. He's calling them back to repentance. You know, he might still be encouraging them in something, but at the same time, he's pointing something out, and he's telling them, you need to grow up in this. You need to stop doing this. Here's how you need to handle it. He don't, he's almost like a church consultant, right? Not only did he plant some of those churches, but he's also like a consultant to them or an advisor, and so in Ephesians, we, we see that the Ephesian church is one of the few that he just basically sings praises to, talks about how he's praying for them regularly. Um, we also see in Acts 19, it's the first time we see the church in Ephesus, and that's, that's when Paul is planting the church. Paul plants the church, he arrives in Ephesus, 12 people, 12 disciples, goes up to him and asks him, you know, do you know about Jesus? Yes, you know, and, and, but they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. So he talks to him, he's like, where, how are you baptized? Like, what, where, how did you come about to where you are now? Well, it was John the Baptist. They were followers of John the Baptist. He tells them about the Holy Spirit, baptized them, and now they're saved. They're believers. They're, they're doing the works of the Lord. There's crazy miracles going on in, in Ephesus and throughout the rest of Asia, and crazy things are happening. Amazing things are happening. So much so that Paul spends two to three, even three years, I believe, in Ephesus and around Ephesus, um, that kind of spurred out of that plant, that church plant. And so he spends more time there in Ephesus than he does in a lot of the other churches that he plants or a lot of the areas during his missionary journeys. Um, we again see the church of Ephesus brought up a chapter later in in chapter twenty, and Paul makes this this kind of comment. At first, I didn't really catch it in. in um, in the way that he said, I don't want to go into Ephesus. And so, I mean, I read that first. It's, it, he said something along those lines. And he, he doesn't want to go into Ephesus because he's got so many friends there, he's going to get sidetracked. He's going to, you know, he's got so many, you know, fellow believers there that he did life with that he was growing so closely with that he knew that it would kind of stall him in what his end goal was to be, which is to get to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. And so, have you ever kind of been in that situation where you're like, "I've I've got to go so fast. I got to get. I got an appointment at this time, and I need to avoid my neighbor. And I know he's out there, and I know he's going to want to ask me questions. And I want to talk to him. I want to hear about his day. Yada, yada, yada. And so you kind of like go GI Joe on him, and you try to sneak out of there, right? So, like in a sense, that's kind of what Paul is doing. He's like, "I know I'm just going to get caught up in it, so he sends." to the leaders of Ephesus, the uh, the uh, overseers or the bishops or pastors, elders, um, to meet him somewhere else. And so they come and they meet, and this is one of the only times we see Paul deliver a speech to um, to Christians in the book of Acts. Typically, he's always debating or um, giving speeches to non-believers or Jews about how Jesus is the fulfillment of what they are reading now, the law, right? So it's primarily his dealings, but here he's talking to the Christians, the overseers of Ephesus, and in this time he, he goes on to say how he's gonna, you know, this is gonna be the last time he sees them. This, you know, he's gonna go on, and he, and he almost got to get a sense of like he's saying that he's going to die soon, that his that his the, these afflictions that are coming about him, and and, and that his, his his time is coming to an end in a sense. And, you know, at the end of that, they, they begin to cry and they weep. And there's like tears, there's, there's kissing, which was okay then um, for men to do. And, you know, just the leaders is different. Um, and so there's this sort of sadness and love and this connection. You can see this bond with these men that have done life together and now they're 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 not going to be able to see each other ever again. So there's this goodbye. But during that 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 session that he gives to these elders, that goodbye, that, that last that last sermon, if it if you will, um, he tells them something that's kind of doesn't you know we wouldn't really expect. He warns them almost to say like he's prophesying or he knows something's coming up later on. He tells them to to be careful to to watch out for the wolves dressed as sheep, right? So. What is he talking about there? He says, you know, it's going to be among your own cells. Remember, this isn't the entire church at Ephesus. This is the overseers. This is the higher-up leadership within the church. He's telling them, among you guys, yourselves, whether it's now or later, the church in Ephesus, there's going to be sheep that aren't really sheep, and they are going to be wolves dressed as those sheep that are going to distort the church, and they're going to cause decay within Ephesus, and I'm warning you about that. Be watchful. And you're like, man, this church was the one that was supposed to be, you know, doing crazy, awesome things like Billy Graham style, right? Like they're supposed to be calling people to Jesus and spreading out through ages. So that kind of throws for a curveball. So now we have like a little bit more of an idea of Ephesus. We also again see Ephesus being talked about in First Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul warns Timothy to, um, to, well, first he encourages him to endure and then he warns him to say, hey, don't. Don't don't talk about don't argue with these guys. You know, let's let's bring them back to to the main thing. You know, let's let's not fight or quarrel um, about you know useless useless words. I believe he says he's talking about basically doctrines that that aren't so important in order for us to have a relationship with God. I mean, that could be a number of different things, right? Like eschatology, like the end times. Like we don't really need to focus on the science behind Jesus coming back and how he will come back. It's good to know, good to know but at the same time, it's not really going to affect um, the way we live our lives, or, or it shouldn't, right? Like the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he's 100% man, 100% God, you know, the, the Trinity, three in one, things like that are the ones that you need to be, you know, staying planted on. And so, Second Timothy comes around, and at this point, it's, it's escalated. Paul even mentions that the church had deserted him, the same church that he was, like, crying as he left, and they were all crying when he left in, in the book of Acts, and so you kind of wonder, like, I wonder if we start to see this foretelling of Paul or this kind of warning start coming to life, right? And so all these books, too, the the, the timeline of them is, is kind of scary in a sense to see that. You know, in the Book of Acts, and then ten years later, you have the epistle, then First Timothy, and Second Timothy, or even after that, and so it's all in line. So you can't really, you know, combat that at all and say there's any sort of strange contradictions. So now we have Ephesus. We know what they're all about. We know where they've been and where they are now. And let's go ahead and dive into our text. So remember v- Revelation chapter two, verses one through five. So the first verse: To the angel of the church in Ephesus right the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands so first of all what are the angel what is the angel of the church in ephesus you might immediately think like i did originally that it's an archangel it's some guardian angel that's basically got the the church's back right that nothing's going to happen to it you know it's like michael or gabriel or something that's that's in charge of that church that's not what it is Um, The angel here is uh, just like the Greek word uh, angelos means not only angel, but it also means messenger. And so John the Baptist was actually called an angel of the Lord. He was a messenger of God. And so in this sense, it's the messenger of this particular church. So maybe it's a pastor, it's one of the elders, um, something, something of that nature. And so we go on to say the words of him who holds the seven stars. So that's Christ holding the seven stars. In chapter 1, if you go back a little bit, you'll see that he refers to the stars as being those seven angels. So those seven angels are in in Jesus' hands, in God's hands, and then who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What are the lampstands? Those are the seven churches in Asia that these letters are all being written to. Okay, so just to kind of give you an idea. um, Verse 2 goes on to say, "'I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance.'" and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse 3 says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have have not grown weary. So verses 2 and 3 are basically what looks to be Jesus acknowledging good things, right? Acknowledging what they've done well so far. And so... Notice he doesn't say, hey, way to go, keep it up. He just basically says, I know, I've seen everything you've done. I've seen that you've done this, 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 and this, right? So remember that as we go forward. Um, Verse 4, this one, I I like the the New American Standard Version, the way it says this. Um, Immediately after listing out some of the good things they've done, he says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What does that mean? Like but I have this against you. And so we see the word but in there that but I have this against you. It's almost to say regardless of everything else this. What is this? This is you you've left the first love, your first love. Um that sounds a lot like the passage in Matthew 7:21 and I think it goes on a couple of verses where it basically says these believers are coming to Christ and saying, didn't we do all these mighty works? We casted out demons. We, we, we did these sorts of things. And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. They did like mighty works. And even in that passage in Matthew, he acknowledges that they, they, there were works, but there was something missing. What was missing? Well, I think we see here that this could, could, could have been what it was. They were missing their first love. So as we read on from verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Man, so he you just said you, you don't have your first love anymore. You've left your first love. And now he's telling them to repent and do those works that you did in the beginning. So, It's not to say that he's telling them you need to do more works, like remember the works you did initially when Paul planted you? Do those same things that you did. He's not telling them so they can have a list of of things to do. What he's really focusing on there is the repent part, the repentance. And now repentance isn't necessarily a work. It's simply looking to Jesus. It's looking to God. It's loving Jesus or loving God more than whatever it is that you're dealing with Sin, right? So repentance isn't necessarily a work. It's something that's a gift from God, actually. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can do. It's it's something we receive. So he comes in and he says, Repent and, and do the works you did before. So those works that they did before were works that were organically grown from this love that they had. Christ wants their heart and he wants the true works that kind of naturally flow from their heart. Not just works without love. And so that's kind of where we're going to be sitting today. uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we see this idea of a powerhouse church. This church in Ephesus that grew exponentially, that Paul said amazing things about, and then slowly we see it start to take a turn for the worse. So, Excuse me, I gotta drink a drink of water like every three minutes up here. I just get parched. So, but with this, we see that the Church of Ephesus, this powerhouse church, is now starting to take a turn for the worse. And we see that it's because of the, the first love; they've forgotten it. And that's what I want us to kind of look at today, as we kind of go a little bit um, further, and, and we talk about how that how does that apply to us, Gary? How do we, how are we going to relate this passage? that's meant for the the, the Church in Ephesus. How does that? What does that mean for me as a believer, me as the, or us as the, the, the Oaks Baptist Church, right? Because this is not only for individual believers, this is also for the, for the entire, entire church. They're one and the same, right? So as we walk, walk through this, we're going to see how this really should be foundational for us. And so what does this mean for you and I? It brings us back to those questions, right? Remember that we asked at the beginning, as a believer, how do you grow in your faith? How do you grow? How do you you take steps forward spiritually? Or in another way, if you're you're going to share the gospel with somebody and they respond and now they're a believer and now they've accepted Jesus and then they ask you, what do I do now? Well, what do you say to them? Okay, so those are the questions. Remember those questions. Uh, Matt Chandler says this. I think it'll be behind us um, or behind me on there. It says, the gospel, though such a glorious thing, it's also such a simple thing. So simple, we almost overlook it. Such a basic thing, we're tempted to feel as if we've somehow graduated beyond it. And yet, without this simple thing, this basic thing, without the life-giving gospel driving and defining both us and our churches, there really isn't much of anything that makes us distinct and alive nothing that our people, groups, and organizations aren't already doing. Wow, so he says it really well there. Matt Chandler, he's a a pastor here in the DFW, the Village Church, the president of Acts 29, a um, parachurch ministry. He goes out and plants churches, helps churches, um, provides, you know, education, things like that. So here he says basically the gospel, if it's not somehow within the core of your church or within the core of your daily life as a believer, then you're not doing it right. That sounds like that's what Ephesus' problem was. They forgot their first love. So we need to realize that the gospel isn't just some word that sounds kind of cliche, it's not just good news for the non believer, but it's foundational for us as established believers or just believers or whatever you want to say. I don't really think there's levels of of Christians. I mean, you do have some with a little more yoke, I guess is what they say, but at the end of the day, you know, we all need Christ just as much as the next person. Right? So, the gospel, the love of Christ, Jesus, ultimately Christ, has to be focal in our everyday lives. It has to be the thing we stand on. It makes or breaks us. Funny thing is, is, it never it never will break us, it's only going to make us, because with it, we're able to stand in front of God, and he's able to look at us, and say, come on in, right? So the gospel can't be something we forget. You know, I said we say the gospel a lot, or I say the gospel a lot, I, I've got friends where, you know, we, we use that word sometimes in we can get to the point where it does sound cliche and it almost loses its value. So, I want to read some passages that talk about what the gospel is basically, who Jesus is, what, what it means for us. And so, you don't have to turn because I'm going to go pretty quickly. Um, but if you want to write these down, feel free. So, in Romans 5 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made made him to be no sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you and I have been saved. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 25. that I want to share is probably my favorite chapter. It's it's within my favorite chapter in the Bible, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with us his wounds are are we healed. All we like sheep have gone; we have turned every one to his own way. To the Lord, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, there's five passages that that clearly lay out who Christ is and what He's done for us, and how important He is to us. See, I think oftentimes we view this gospel, this this news of Jesus. In a sense, of like, it's like an ace up a preacher's sleeve that he brings out at the very end of a message, and that's the only time we hear it. It's like, oh, I forgot to show you guys my best hand, right? Like, I feel like we would want to have that out all day long. And so I say that not, not for the preaching aspect, I mean, I think that's important, but more so, that's not the way we need to view it. It needs to be the thing that we do all day long, morning to evening, not just something that we save for, for non-believers, The gospel is not only for the non-believer, but it is just as important to you as it is for them. And so, I made a couple of notes here, I want to, it'll come up on the slides, stumbling blocks, stumbling blocks that, that basically prevent gospel growth. Number one is we view our dealings with the gospel in the same way we play a game of hot potato. I thought that was funny. Um, hot Potato. What like what in the world? So Hot Potato, we know how that game goes. I've actually never played it. I'm never going to play it. That sounds so strange to want to play that game, but people do. Um, it's this idea that you've got to get rid of it as soon as you can. It's, it's super hot. It's, you don't want to touch it. You don't want to keep it that long. In the same way, I think that we treat the gospel this way. Not, in, not Maybe not on purpose, but we hear the gospel, we're saved, and now we think that's only for new believers, or not believers, I'm sorry, that we just need to give to them. Oh, I got it, now I got to pass it on, and that's all I got to do with it. The second thing is the gospel is seen as a diving board with the chief goal of jumping into the pool of Christianity. You see, the the gospel is basically the doorway that you walk through and then after you've walked through that door, you can shut it, and then you're into this entire room of Christians, and now you've got to do other stuff. Right? Like, that's so wrong. Like, that's not what, it, that's not what it's there for. That's a, that, that second point is part of a quote from J.D. Greer, who's the pastor up of a church in um, North Carolina. Uh, and he goes on to say that, you know, the gospel isn't the diving board. It's the pool itself. It's what, like, we have to be consumed with the love of Christ and consumed with the fact that we need him. If you're not constantly looking at your sin and saying that you need Jesus, then it's, it's, that's, not, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to realize that in our weakness, we are made strong because we realize we're weak and we realize Christ is strong for us. By the way, that's That's humility. Humility isn't not wanting to acknowledge that you're good at something. It's acknowledging the fact that you need Christ. That's humility. The third thing is, a uh, stumbling block, is the gospel is elementary. We graduate from the gospel. There's a couple of passages in the New Testament that I think can be a little misleading if you don't like really dig into them. In um, and, and Hebrews and in Corinthians, it talks about uh, I guess, the spiritual milk and they weren't really ready to to get any more like meat or kind of graduate to more adult food, if you will. He's not talking about, you know, I think even in Hebrews it says the doctrine of Christ. He's not talking about Christ himself and the gospel. He's talking about the fact that they're still arguing over, you know, the older rituals or that they're still in sin and they're still coming to church or whatever it might be and they're still walking in sin. And they're like, oh, I just... Like they just haven't figured it out. They, don't, they still haven't let the gospel really penetrate their heart to the point that they're ready to start going and doing, doing church, basically. And so those are three things that I think prevent us from graduating and, and not graduating, prevent us from growing in the gospel. See, we, we need this, this, this Jesus, this gospel, this good news. It needs to be the foundation of everything that we do. Um, you know, we, we talked about all those passages and, and how it articulates uh, what the gospel is and what Christ has done for us. You know, I think through those, we learn that our love uh, for Christ has to be the foundational source, the ultimate motivation that empowers the way we live our lives. You know, I asked that question, how do you seek growth? How do you advise a new believer in Jesus like, what do you do next? You know, I think sometimes we, you know, you hear of, of individuals, you know, I know I went to Dallas Baptist University, so I was, you know, it was basically a church camp on steroids, you know, five days or seven days a week, I guess. Um, and everybody there was, you know, it's, let's just talk about the Word of God, but then you'd run into other people. And like, I, I, I still struggled whether or not I was even saved sometimes till I was 22 because I didn't really know the gospel very well. Until it finally hit me, I was like, "Oh, this is important. I need a, this. Isn't just for when I believed at church camp when I was fifteen. Like this is for every day." Well, there, there were also those that were like so focused on the gifts of God, you know, spiritual gifts or maybe even miraculous gifts. You know, I don't, I don't want to get into where you stand on the gifts if they're even still around. That's I'm not really into that, like having that discussion. But the fact that they look to those as a way of furthering along their their walk with God. Or if you're if you're like others, where like like me, even where you go to theology and you want to learn as much as you can because you think that's just going to help you grow. Like it's all that you can do. Or maybe it's you want to become a member of the church, you want to join a small group, you want to do this this this. That's how you think you're going to grow in in your in your spiritual walk with God. Now those are all amazing things. Like we need those things, but we need to remember that first comes Christ and then those things come in order to stir our affections for Christ. We learn theology because learning theology and learning more about God helps us love God more and what He's done for us. We, we gather with our fellow believers because gathering with our fellow believers and worshiping together and confessing our sins and sharing in our burdens, we're able to point each other back to Christ and preach, each other, preach to each one another the gospel. The gifts are meant to point to Christ. They're meant to authenticate Christ and what he did. You see, so the gospel is foundational. Only when you truly appreciate what Christ has done, and not just upon conversion, are we then able to carry out our God-given ministry to this world. You have to appreciate it, kind of like Chick-fil-A, like it's my pleasure to like help you out. Part of the reason I think they're so successful is the fact that whenever you get help there, it's like they're smiling the entire time. Whereas if you go anywhere else, it's like it's like they're they're at their job and they're just like, "Oh my gosh, like here's your food, just leave." You know, they they are joyful about it. That's what I love about Chick Fil A. I don't know if about y'all, I try to get I try to get them to say "My pleasure" as many times as I can. <laughs> that might be mean, but they are so nice. I love them, and, and I think in the same way that that's probably I haven't done any research on that. That might be their their whole philosophy there is that out of pleasure do we serve you in the same way that we're supposed to serve Christ, out of pleasure. Um, and so as we get ready to close here, um, I want to ask some questions and, and, and remind us of, of why Christ is something that we need to look to. Um, are you struggling? Are you dealing with something in your life right now that you just, you're having a hard time, maybe it's insecurities. Maybe it's some sort of habitual sin. Maybe it's kind of like I said in the beginning, inadequacies. You start to doubt whether or not you're even qualified to do something and you start to just completely put all of your abilities um, in, this, in this bowl of, um, you know, it's all up to me in order for me to be successful you start to and then that kind of that makes me anxious thinking about that cuz i know i'm not going to be successful if it's up to me you know i ask those things because i know that every one of us in here have dealt with something like that and overcoming those habitual sins or overcoming those insecurities are not going to be solved by getting us another accountability partner or a second, or a third, or a fourth, if you take my approach whenever I was in high school. Even in college, I did that. That's not the answer. It's, it's not getting involved in another Bible study at school or at church. That's not going to help you overcome that sin. What's going to help overcome that sin is loving Christ more than the sin itself, to the point where you want to run to Christ because you love him so much, and you realize in doing that how bad your sin is and you want to stay away from it, right? And those, those accountability partners, those uh, Bible studies, those, those things, those are, those are supposed to help in pointing us to Christ. We have a great program, Celebrate Recovery, right, where people come, they, they, they're dealing with things, and the group is there, and they do amazing things to point people back to Christ and help them overcome these hard things in life they know that they can't give them anything other than Jesus. Because anything other than Jesus will not work. And so, that's kind of what I want to end with, is, is the fact that we see this powerhouse church of Ephesus. They forgot their first love. Right? We need to realize that there's not, not, it's just not like a honeymoon phase where we're all excited for you know a couple of weeks or something like that, and then after that it's just, all right, now we're... Now we're married, I guess. You know, right? Like, we got to keep dating our wives. <laughs> you know, we got to keep taking them out. I said that in the first service. Uh, I, if I want to keep pursuing my wife and loving her and staying fired up about our marriage, I have to keep pursuing her. I can't get caught up in work in ministry. I can't make all those things supreme things and forget about that. Or our, my love for her, our love together, will kind of start to fade. And so. With that, let's remember our first love, being in Jesus Christ.
0: Thanks for listening to the Oaks Cast. The Oaks meets on Sundays at 9 a.m. for traditional service and 10.30 a.m. for contemporary service. For more information, you can visit us at discovertheoaks.org.